Welcome back to the bookcase. We took a week off last week and we hope you didn't mind, but it was very relaxing and we had a good Christmas and we wish you a happy new year. I'm Charlie Gibson. And I am Kate Gibson. And I am also fully refreshed and um, I don't know, bushy-tailed. Is that what they used to say? <laughs> and bushy-tailed and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Excited for 2023. And super excited about these first two shows. We are talking to the brilliant, the amazing, the prolific David Sedaris. David Sedaris is unique. And one of the things I found in reading as we have this past nine months preparing for the podcast is that I have not thought a whole lot about essayists in my reading habits. And I fell in love with Mary Laura Philpott that mm-hmm. we did early on. And you introduced me to David Sedaris and I fell in love with his writings. Mm-hmm. Really good essayists as those two are. And I'm probably leaving somebody else Jenny out. Jenny Lawson that we did. is also a tourist. Jenny Lawson, yeah. who we did, who is mm-hmm. a wonderful essayist. Mm-hmm. I love the way they write because they take things that are sort of universal and then they find different ways to write about them. Mm-hmm. And they give you a fresh outlook. And it is not insignificant. When you have a book of essays, they're short enough that you can get in bed and read one. And then you've got a new one the next day. And it's all good. And it's all good. And you won't forget what you read uh, as you do when you get in bed and fall asleep. And then you have to go back 20 pages. No, with them, you can just read it and go to bed with a smile on your face or a chuckle in your throat if you're reading David Sedaris. I think if you are somebody that enjoys sort of writing for yourself in a diary or in a journal, you have a very good idea of how bad that writing can be. He's one of the most amazing observationalists I've ever met. He's this odd combination of memoirist, humorist, If you like to laugh, you will love these books, by the way. He has all of the things that scream, I'm going to sit in a corner by myself and just not talk to anybody. And yet, and yet, he loves interacting with people. He loves observing people. He is one of the most active listeners I think I've ever met in my life. If you've never seen David Sedaris, he is, well, he's slight of build. He is a bespeckled. He is most unassuming. Yeah. When you look at him or look at pictures of him, you would think this is sort of a cross between Woody Allen and Wally Cox, if yeah. anybody goes back that far, <laughs> who was Mr. Peepers on television, but very, very few people are old enough to remember wow. that. But he is, you wouldn't pick him out in a crowd, except that he does have a very unusual, in order to be noticed, he wears sometimes clothes, especially when he's doing television appearances, that, that make you go, where, where did that come from? <laughs> But he gets a kick out of that. So he does have an unusual wardrobe at times, but he's he's not somebody that you would that you would pick out. And actually, in next week's podcast, which will also feature David Sears, we're going to talk a little bit about the fact that he's been going into bookstores and picking out books for years, and the bookstore owners don't recognize him. No, he's almost... I don't know. He's almost nebbish that way. I mean, he just kind of, you know, next week when we ask David what his favorite independent bookstore is, you're not going to want to miss that. But... The independent bookstore took a long time to recognize who the small guy was in the long coat that was sitting in the corner and reading for hours on end. David is a memoirist who very much believes in joining a conversation. He has read a ton. He is a huge reviser. What he does is not easy. And as I say, it's very easy to do it badly. And David Sedaris does it brilliantly. You find yourself nodding while you're laughing when you read him. His latest book is called Happy Go Lucky. It came out in May of 2022. And we immediately tried to book him for the podcast. Kate said, you have to read him. I did. And we thought it would be wonderful to have David Sedaris with us. But to take his idiosyncrasies, (laughs) he doesn't have a cell phone. 
He doesn't drive. He doesn't do email. He doesn't, I, I've forgotten, he has a computer, I think now, but- But just but to type out. But that's a recent uh, acquisition. Yeah. And so he said, how can I do it? So we had to do it in person. We waited for him to come to New York and we had a delightful conversation with somebody who, as I say, can write about experiences that they've had and can find lessons or particularly in his case, humor in them. And it never would have occurred to me the kinds of reactions that he has to things. I saw an interview where he quotes Flannery O'Connor, the great writer, and says, it's not enough just to have experiences and write about them. You have to take time and contemplate Mm. those experiences Mm. and then write about them. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things he does, if you're not totally aware of what David Sedaris is about, is he keeps a diary. Just mm-hmm. a, He has a little tiny little notebook and he mm-hmm. just takes notes in it all the time. That was brought up in a piece that 60 Minutes mm-hmm. did about him. Okay. And I think, as I recall, you started the interview. I did. And as a matter of fact, it's one of the first things. When he walked into the room, the first thing he did was take off his coat. The second thing he did was take out the notebook and put it in front of him. It is a little tiny reporter's spiral notebook. And sometimes it's terrifying when he picks it up and writes something in it because you think, oh, God, what did I just say that was so stupid or so, or maybe it was so smart. But he does. He's he's that kind of an observationalist. He writes things down right away. And that notebook to him is like a second skin, I think. So enough of our palaver. Yes. Um, <laughs> this is our first podcast of the year, and we are delighted that it is with a writer that we both so respect, David Sedaris, our conversation. David Sedaris, it is so great to have you in the book. Chaos. watched the 60-minute piece, read a lot of you. So what is in the notebook for today? I started on this Duolingo. My British friend got me started on it last summer. And so I'm using it for Japanese. And I've noticed that it, it includes sentences like, who is his husband? And is that his wife over there? When Japan doesn't recognize same-sex marriage, right? But my friend Mike is using it for Hebrew. One of the sentences that taught him was, my uncle is a broken man. (laughs) (laughs) So so what do you do with that? Yeah, here we have our notebook. You take little notes every day. Somebody has found an uncle who's a broken man. What do you do with that? Uh, Well, every morning I read what I wrote in my diary a week ago. And I give myself an opportunity to clean it up. Like if I have three sentences in a row that start with the word he, you know, I just fix it, clean it up a little bit. And then if there's something of interest, then I put it in my diary guide, right? Meaning that it might be something worth revisiting in terms of, uh, or putting in an essay somewhere. A woman wrote me yesterday, I'd used the word panties in my book. And, and she said, I don't know if you know this, but women don't use the word panties. We hate the word panties. And so it never occurred to me. And so I made a note to ask women how they feel about I the use word underwear. Panties. Underwear. That's what she said. Yes, I don't like the word panties. She said she bets that panties is a word used by men 98% of the time. Yes. But I always thought that because women Because I wear them. underwear. Men wear underwear and I, I've, I've, I, well, I'm older now, but <laughs> I used to find it rather enticing in the lingua of seduction. Uh, it was not a bad word to to use. Oh, God, when you say things like that, I'm amazed you ever had a language of seduction. That was, that <laughs> was impressive. All of which leads to the observation <laughs> that you draw a lot from your audience, that indeed you play off of the people that you meet when you're on the road. And I guess that's probably one of the reasons you like being on the road, or at least I would imagine it is. But your interplay with audience and how that winds up reflecting in your work, interesting and common. Well, because 
you can talk to an audience where you can't talk to strangers. Like if I went up to a woman waiting for a bus and I said, how do you feel about the word panties? That's not going to go well. But if somebody <laughs> waited in line to get a book signed, and if I say, I'm taking a survey, how do you feel about the word panties? Then I can learn things and it can lead to all sorts of stories maybe that somebody Eve, didn't. But even in that setting, don't you run the risk of being whacked across the face? <laughs> no, I, I don't know if being gay kind of has something 10%. to do with that. Oh, oh, that's interesting. But I know, like, there are things that I wouldn't say to, let's say if a young gay man came through the line, like, I would never comment on his appearance or anything like that. Whereas if a woman comes by, I'll say, like, is that new? And or, You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not being phony about it, but... But it's stuff I wouldn't do. I didn't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable. Let me come back to you when you started out. You write about being somebody who didn't think they had any skills or talents. You were heavily into drugs. You didn't see any prospects. What was the trigger that turned it around that made you think, I can write and this can be really valuable to me and to readers? I think it was reading. I mean, I was not a big reader when I was in junior high or high school, but then I was, I uh, dropped out of college and I was with my friend and we were hitchhiking across the country and we started reading this Kurt Vonnegut book to each other. And it was the first time I'd read anything really for pleasure. And then I wound up living in a little town in Oregon and I was working in a, was picking apples and pears and working in a cannery and I got a library card and I didn't have any friends. I mean, I didn't know anybody in the town. And I just started reading the kind of the books that we we're supposed to read in high school. And then those led to other books. And eventually I just dis discovered how moved I could be by, you know, a novel or a short story. And I guess I thought, what would it be like to be able to do that to somebody else? To make somebody, I don't know, feel something is the right word, but to get them to pay attention even, to get them to turn a page would be an accomplishment, you know. And I knew that it was going to take a long time. I never confused publishing with writing. I mean, I get a lot of letters from people who say, oh, I started writing six months ago, but now I want to take it to the next level. How do I get it published? And it's like, you shouldn't even be asking yourself that question right now. You know, you should be writing for its own sake and the rest will just sort of take care of itself. But if that's your motivation when you set out, like, how much money can I make? It's probably not going to happen because you're going to be bad for a long time. So you're living in the backwaters of Oregon. You're reading a lot, writing at that time? Just writing in my diary. For your own amusement. Mm -hmm. And who noticed it? Nobody. But no one deserved to notice it. It was pretty bad. I mean, even when I thought, this is pretty good, I thought, then I would read a book and I would think, no, it's pretty bad. <laughs> you know, like some people can't tell the difference between what they've written on a page and what's in a book. Mm. And I, I think I was fortunate that I could always tell the difference. And I would say, this doesn't look like what you'd find in a book. And I think now, being a young person now, I think the compulsion would be, I'm going to put that, put it out there and get likes and I'm going to get attention. And some young man sent me his writing yesterday, and I wanted my feedback. And I would not have sent another a writer 
my something that I wrote uninvited, but it just wasn't ready to be seen. What he sent me wasn't, and I just felt bad for him that he couldn't tell. How do you know? How do you know when you're at that point? Open a book. How did you know? Opening a book and looking at what I'd written and then looking at what was in a book and then thinking what I've written isn't inviting. I haven't invited a reader into it. I don't know how to seduce a reader. I need to learn to do that. Is there a trick to that kind of seduction? I think reading. You know, reading and look at how other people do it. It's not necessarily that you can copy them, but you can tell when it's done correctly and when it's not. You said in the 60 Minutes piece that you like to write by ear. So what is that process? I mean, do you write something and then read it aloud to yourself? Do you read it to Hugh? I mean, when you say you're writing, how are you hearing it? Apparently, (laughs) I didn't know it, but people say, we stop it. (laughs) (laughs) Luckily, planes make their own kind of noise, so you can't hear it. But uh, I guess I'm always, it's it's a rhythm thing that I'm looking for. So when did you get to the point and how did you get to the point and who was it who brought you to publication and saw in you what has become an extraordinary future? Well, I dropped back into college when I was 27 and I took, I think, five writing classes when I was in college, but I went to art school. And so it was actually pretty smart on my part because they had some great writing teachers, but nobody cared about it. You know, they didn't have, <laughs> yeah. they didn't offer majors in it. So nobody, I was the only one who cared. And the teachers were excited to have somebody who cared. So they gave me all their attention. And I had a teacher who named Jim McManus, who really, he really, just the way he treated me, the way he, he treated me like, like we were equals, you know? And I, mm. I, I was just so, uh, it wasn't just that I was flattered by it. I wanted, I didn't want to disappoint him. You know, I just, I, I, he put his faith in me and I didn't want it to be misplaced. I mean, I was still going to work every day, but then I was just reading out loud one night at this place and Ira Glass from National Public Radio was in the audience and he heard me read. And then he called a couple of years later and said, do you have anything Christmassy that would work for a local radio show that he had in Chicago? So I had worked at Macy's as an elf for a couple of years. And so I wrote <laughs> I about that. I remember you writing about that, yes. And I, it's, it's typecasting. And so it, uh, <laughs> I know it. He, uh, <laughs> if I had to line up 50 people and say, which of those guys is going to make a great elf? And you were in the line. I, Sedaris, you'd have, you'd yeah. have been picked yeah, up. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I mean, when I saw the ad in the paper, I thought, that's my job. I, did. <laughs> um, I can bring No one can elf like I'm going to elf. I'm going to elf it like elf and crazy. I think the biggest audience I'd had reading in front of people was like 500 people. And so then I went from 500 people to 10 million people overnight. But that's how many people listened when he put it on Morning Edition. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing how my life just changed overnight. You know? What was that essay? What was it? Yeah. It was actually the, the diary I kept when I worked as an elf. It wasn't even an essay. It was- It was an elf diary. It was, it was actual, <laughs> unchanged- Elf diary. Lines from my diaries. How reliable are you as a narrator? 
as a narrator? Mm-hmm. Uh, gosh, I like to think I'm a pretty reliable narrator. When I write fiction, I like writing... I love an unreliable narrator. I love somebody who's just presenting half the story, and that's so much fun from a character point of view to write. When I write nonfiction, I mean, everybody's got an agenda. I know I've never written anything as revenge. I've never written anything to... Even against your dad? No. Mm -mm. No, I've never written anything to belittle anybody. I mean, I think, I think especially if you're going after other people, you kind of have to go after yourself more, mm. or it's not going to, or it's just going to invite the kind of, uh, well, invite the criticism I guess you kind of deserve. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. But I come back to those early days before you broke through. There's a sentence in one of your books. You says, as a child, I'd always harbored a sneaking suspicion that I was a genius. Did I write that? (laughs) Did I write that? I love that. The theory was completely my own, corroborated by no one. But if that's in you, if there is a self-belief like that, that someday I may not have any skills, I may not have a good job, I may not whatever, I got a sort of crazy family, but it's in me and it can happen. That feeling was always with you? I, this is an embarrassing thing to admit, but I just wanted to be somebody so badly. I just couldn't bear the thought of going through my life and no one knowing who I was. Mm-hmm. You know, like, of I just wanted to walk into a room and I wanted people to say, is that him? Look, that's him. As a young person, I didn't know what I was going to do to make that happen. But I just knew I would die if I didn't get that. Really? I would just. I, by the way, that's my favorite bumper sticker that I ever saw in a car. It said, when I was young and said I wanted to be somebody, 
I should have been more specific. <laughs> well, in your case, in your case, it it turned out to be writing, but you didn't ever th know that at that point in time. No, I started off drawing and painting, and I have no skill for it. I mean, I could be clever in certain ways, you know, but I wasn't like I got into the show at the North Carolina Art Museum when I was twenty-one. But it was for these crates that I had packed with things. Garbage. That were, and that was yeah, yes. yeah. And that was your drug period yeah. too. When, <laughs> when, when drugs have a way of bringing imagination to your soul. Yes. So it wasn't like I could draw or you know or paint a crate or whatever. I mean, I could paint it with house paint, but I thought, well, I worked within my limitations. And then, <laughs> you know, I tried acting, but I don't know what to do with my hands when I'm on stage. Peter Farrelly, you know, the director, mm -hmm. he said he wanted to write a part for me. He's working on this TV show, and he said, I'd like to write a part for you. I said, I don't never know what to do with my hands on stage. He said, I'll make you someone who was born without arms. <laughs> <laughs> and you were like, perfect. If you could just take away my legs, I'll just be this head on stage. That'd be awesome. I'll just be this head wheeled around. Well, then I thought, no, people who don't have arms who'd be watching and be like, really? <laughs> they gave it to him? Like, what part am I supposed to get? You might have gotten away with that with Monty Python, but other than that, I, I think I, it... I have a question. For you. How do you know you're done? How do you say, okay, this is a book, I'm done, until the next one? Mm, I guess when I can't think, I'm not a lazy person. You but when I can't, a lazy person. But when I can't think of anything else I can do to fix something, right? And I mean, by this point, too, it's gone by my editor, and most often it's gone by my editor, and then the editor at The New Yorker, or the Paris Review, or wherever something winds up being published. And then if I'm happy with it, then I think, okay, this is done now. I don't know any writer who wants to reread an old book, but I'm sure if I had to reread my old books, I would want to rewrite everything in them. But you have to move on, I suppose. After you have all of these essays in front of you and you say, okay, this is a book, what's the through line for you? How do you then go, I mean, is there an arc or do you no. just go, oh, you just put gather them together and you say, hey, look, they, they lined up like this. Yep. Okay. Yep, sometimes I put them in, I mean, I have help putting them in order. And sometimes I think, well, can't that be my editor's job? Like, can't that, like, let let her do that. <laughs> but I've never sat down to write a book. Like, I've never, to write a book, say, of travel essays. I don't know. It just seems like I have a lot to say about travel, but I don't know that I have a whole book's worth, and I don't want it to seem forced, right. you know? Right. Actually, when Katie started that question about when do you know you're done, I was thinking she was referring to individual essays as opposed to a book. In other words, do you need to have a baffo last line? Do you need to have something that concludes it in your mind and hopefully in the reader's mind? For the book? No, for the individual essay. Oh, for the individual essay. I have to, because I have a lecture agent, and so I go on tour every fall and every spring. Last fall, I went to 74 cities. It was right after the pandemic and things opened up again and I was making up for lost time. And then last spring, I went to 44 cities and then I went to 44 more cities on a book tour. And then I just got back from 43 cities a couple of days ago. So everything, 
I'll start a, a tour with a number of new essays and read them out loud and go back to the room and rewrite them and read them and rewrite them. So I learn a lot from the audience. Mm. I learn what... So, so that helps you to edit. Like that's part mm -hmm. of your edit process yeah. then is speaking your lines in front mm -hmm. of an audience. And sometimes it's just I hear myself and I think, you know what? That paragraph isn't worth the breath it takes to read it. <laughs> I don't really need it. Whereas if I had given it to an editor right away and they said, we need to get this paragraph, I would say, no, that's a very important paragraph. But I need to sometimes learn on my own that it's well, not it's interesting that, that, you, that you, in effect, try out material in front of audiences. I, I remember on Good Morning America talking to a lot of musicians. And when they tour, they say, we've got new material that we want to see how they react to, but everybody wants us mm. to play their old favorites. You know, we can't get away without playing this, that, that, and the other thing. It's interesting to me that you try out your material on audiences. Do you find they're as responsive to that as they would be to the golden oldies in effect? I never read the old things. You don't go really? back. I make a list of what I read in whatever town I'm in. And then I look at it, and I don't ever repeat myself when I go back. I just feel like the audience is going to think, God, I haven't done anything, <laughs> you know, since I last saw him. So, no, I don't. And, I, and someone said, well, you know, they don't, they would like it, but I wouldn't. David Sedaris, our first part of our conversation with him in this new year. I mentioned that his newest book is Happy Go Lucky. He has wonderful titles for his book, Kate. Me Talk Pretty One Day was a, a title that I just don't get, don't understand. <laughs> Let's Explore Diabetes with Owls. Two things you absolutely think go together, diabetes and owls. And, owls. and then he has one, and I'm not going to quote it exactly, but when you are engulfed in flames, make sure your family is dressed in denim corduroy. or corduroy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Where do you come up with that? But as I say, they are all wonderful essays. I think what's really interesting to me about David, um, and, and we talked a little bit about the sort of characteristics I'm fascinated by, because he's so many interesting, weird things. His writing, very funny, very dry, very observational, surprisingly poignant, I mm, think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, there are passages that really got me choked up about his family and, and his coming into his own and realizing who he was. He is terrifyingly ambitious, which I think is also really interesting that he wanted to go out there and he wanted to be somebody. And he was shaped by a very disappointing interaction with a writer at a book signing. He just, he's just this really interesting combination of strong characteristics, all of which I love. And yet when he was young, he was totally drifting. Yeah. I mean, he had no, no place to land. He had no skills that he could identify. He just knew that there was something in him. And finally he he discovered it, as he said, when he was writing. It's so much fun talking to David <laughs> Sedaris. As I say, we're going to make two podcasts out of it. Next week will be the second part of our conversation. And next week, we will have the rapid fire with David Sedaris, which I found really, really interesting. And also, uh, we will feature next week David Sedaris's favorite bookstore, which he identified for us. And I just assumed, well, when he went out to Seattle, he would do lectures there or whatever. Uh, no, not at all. Uh, he simply would, when he was in Seattle, would go into the store, find a chair over on the side, take out a bunch of books and read. And for years, he was going into that bookstore and they didn't know who he was. But he just loved the store, which is a pretty good recommendation. Heck yeah. But anyway, um, it, it, it was such a delight to talk to David that we wanted to do two 
podcasts out of it. We hope you'll tune in next week as well. We have no coda uh, today because um, we'll play David's next week, but we do want to remind you about who makes this podcast possible. And we will simply say that we hope you'll stay with us in the new year. We've had so much fun on the bookcase and we can't wait to have more. So we hope you'll keep tuning in because we're having a great time. The bookcase is a production of ABC Audio. It is produced by David Candida in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we want to give special thanks to Josh Cohan, Kevin Ryder, Ariel Chester, Nania McLean, and Cameron Shertavian. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.